Hi, everyone. Before we get into this next episode, we just wanted to take a moment and say thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. You know, before Wills and I started this, we had very few expectations for how it could turn out and what the response would be. But now we're coming close to the end of season two, and the response has just been incredible. We've heard from people from around the country and from around the world. Yeah, we love getting emails and messages on social media about what you guys think of the show, who you'd like to hear us talk to next, and as, as well as any suggestions for the episodes. We're really excited to do this, and we're super grateful to Rule 29 for giving us the opportunity just to explore storytelling and creativity and, quite simply, incredible people. It's really something we care about. We have some great stuff lined up into this fall and winter, and we can't wait to share it with you. All right, Wills, let's get into this episode. From Rule 29 Creative, I'm Justin Ahrens. And I'm Wills Francis. And this is Design Of. On a daily basis, it's so easy to just, for me anyway, to fall into routine. I wake up, I know I'm going to get to work, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to da-da-da-da-da-da, and now it's, oh, time for bed. So that just cycles through every day. And I think when you go to a film or exposed to some story that sort of like shakes you and says, you're alive, pay attention, you know, that's, I think, the job that we have as storytellers. Um, and usually that sort of manifests itself in a sense of awe and wonder um, that you've failed to experience just by get, getting trapped in the cycle of, of everyday life. You may not know the name of our next guest, but you definitely know things he's created. Pete Docter is an Oscar award-winning director at Pixar, and he has worked on such films as Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., my personal favorite, Up!, and his latest achievement, Inside Out. Justin and I traveled to San Francisco to meet Pete and to see the Pixar studio firsthand. It was awesome. So, Wills, can you tell me really quick uh, what you were just checking um, about a half hour before our, our big interview? Um, I was checking to make sure that we had the USB um, connector to make sure that we could actually record this thing. Just checking to make sure that our backup microphone's working. Levels are looking good. Yeah? Feeling good? Yeah, we're good. Okay. There's a lot of... So hold on, let me see. How long have we been in San Francisco? We've been in San Francisco for probably... 24 hours? Not quite 24 hours, but yeah. And you just checked to make sure we had all the stuff now. Here's the thing. I knew we did. But my personality type is one that likes to, um, I call it, Wait confirm last and reaffirm. No, no, no. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, let's get headed over to Pixar. What do you say? That's the plan. All right. Now would you lose? I swear, this this whole trip is just losing and finding electronics. Alright, so we are outside the gates of Pixar Studios. Justin? Yeah. Don't be taking photos as we're about to careen past the security yeah. guard. Okay. We're gonna have to go down low. Hey, play cool. Play, play cool. cool. Play cool. Security. Hi. Good. My name is Justin Ahrens, and I have a 3.30 um, meeting with Victoria Manley and Pete Doctor. And Great. Oh, sure. I would definitely get his. Can 
There you go. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Have you folks been here before? No. All right, welcome to Pixar. Thank you. Thank you so much. So wear this to where it's visible. This is for wheels. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, so once you get to the stop sign, you make a right. And then make another ride that's where all the guest parking is at. Okay. But if you can't find any parking, pretty much park anywhere. Okay. And then you walk back this way, you see the main building or Steve Jobs building. Okay. Right as you walk down the alleyway, go through the double doors and sign in at the front desk. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. I just want to say that he was eyeballing that microphone. I the know whole he time. was. He did not know. Hey, hey, how you doing? I'm Wills. Wills, I'm Pete. Good to meet you. Pete. Justin. Hey, Justin. How's it going? Good, man. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you guys. So before we get too far into this, I need to send a special shout-out to my good friend Brad Cathy. He knows why. Tacos on us next time we see you, Brad. Well, Pete, thanks for being on our podcast. Um, we really appreciate it. And uh, we'd love to um, dig in and explore some of the creative process. And, sure. And uh, uh, I have to admit up front... Um, a lot of times people ask what is your favorite Pixar movie and some people can't respond I can respond okay it's up alright so I would good love taste to, I'd love to talk to you about that one alright yeah, yeah fine yeah. so I um, listened and watched one of your interviews that you did for um, I think it was the Minnesota National Public Radio um, Westminster oh yeah and uh, you said something that was I found really interesting and you talked about uh, the movie Dumbo Mm-hmm. Tell me why Dumbo is one of your favorite films. Dumbo! No, no, no. Dumbo is just uh, a si- it's dis- it's deceptively simple is the thing. You look at it and it seems like very basic and cartoon and whatever, but it's so emotional, you know. Yeah. Everybody always cries when the, the Baby Mind song. And so, what, you know, they, they were somehow able to take the complexity of this relationship, the mother kid relationship and distill it down into really uh, like candy coated fun to watch but deep and interesting I mean it's really just very well told it's a good story and weirdly I was doing some research about it um, from the very first pitch until it came out was like a year and a half so it's it puts us to shame on so many levels because they did it so fast it's like a third of the time As you can imagine, Pete was a kid who was just entranced by stories, animation, and technology from a young age, and he brought that same enthusiasm when he began working on his early film projects. Yeah, I mean, I definitely liked making stuff. You know, there's always the kid who's drawing stuff in the backs of his notepads, and everyone's like, wow, look at that. That was not me. I (laughs) I wanted to be that kid, but I really struggled with drawing. I couldn't, I just... I wanted, I, I guess I had ideas of what I wanted to achieve and I wasn't that good. And so I worked hard at it, but then I also liked to take apart tape recorders and, you know, make puppets and do all sorts of dorky things that nobody, no other, none of the other cool kids did. <laughs> but uh, I guess it's ultimately what got me here. I draw something and like, that doesn't look like a photograph. That's, that's in my, I want it to look like a photo, you know, because some people can draw like that. Yeah. They just have the shading and everything. But ultimately, you know, you realize in the long run, it's not about that, right? It's about the deeper ideas. That's what makes or breaks you. Because given enough passion for something, I mean, I definitely want to stand up and defend you against people who say you don't have it. Because I think there is a certain amount of like, okay, the world's not fair. That guy has an amazing, in God-given talent. I don't know how. But... 
The thing that gets you further uh, is passion. The idea that you just every day show up and do it again and again and again. And I think for those of us here at a place like Pixar, we get paid to do it, so it's it's even easier to support that habit because <laughs> yeah. you have to. And so you get better. You have, you're given this great gift of the opportunity to test it out. And it's like practicing. You know, you'd never give a kid a violin and say, "All right, you're playing at Carnegie Hall tomorrow." Right. You know, it's like no, you have to play for years and years and years. And it's the same with filmmaking. So how did you get from Minnesota to, and where did you go to school again? I went to the California Institute of the Arts okay. in Valencia, okay. California. And I went to, uh, I was lucky enough, I went to this school in Bloomington, in high school, that had a, a program that placed you with areas in which you were interested in. So, um, like a friend of mine worked at 3M in the artificial intelligence lab, and I worked at a cartoon house making uh, commercials for like banks and you know stuff like oh, that. Um, but it was a great chance to just see how the whole thing works. How does it get from a drawing onto film and how do you synchronize the sound and all this? And it was through that I started asking around like how do, you know, if I were gonna do this for a living, how do I learn? Because there a place to go to school? And um, CalArts was one of very few at the time that, that offered that, a school that actually trained you to, to make animated films. Nowadays, there's a lot of them, a lot yeah. of choices. But. So what, what was your portfolio like then? Uh, How did, you, did, did they have some sort of course that said you have to have so many drawings or, you know, you know show some sort of style? They had guidelines on their, on their site, and I think most schools do, and they'll yeah. give you even little examples of things that they like to see, drawing solidity and things. But, you know, ultimately, and this is true of almost everywhere, I think, and Pixar included, there's uh, lots of stories where people turned in what they thought Pixar wanted to see, and then finally, and out of desperation, just said, "You know what? I'm going to put in what I want," and that's ultimately what got you, what gets you in. Like having some ability to kind of expose part of who you are, a deeper sense of you in your work. That's, I think, what got me in there, and ultimately here. I would say probably a lot of people would say this place is a hub of creativity. I would say in a lot of ways, to me, it feels like it's sort of a hub of the exploration of wonder. What would you say, this is somewhat of an impossible question I realize, mm -hmm. what would you say is special about this place? Uh, well, there's a lot of things that are special about it um, and really unique and rare in the history of humankind. You know, once in a while you get really talented people and then unfortunately they're in a position where they can't afford to do their talent. You know, they can't afford to paint because they need to eat. Or they don't have someone to lobby for them. They're kind of an introvert. You know, so here you have St the combination of Steve Jobs who is really great at almost evangelical, you know, like kind of get the word out there and, and you know, figure out how to um, spread the word about this place. He also had uh, money, so the whole thing was very protected, the, the sort of vision of making animated feature films. And then you had the amazing combination of Ed Catmull, uh, who's kind of Mr. Science, you know, he's like the Spock of this place. Um, and then um, he hired uh, kind of, I don't know exactly how the fates conspired that he found John Lasseter, who again had this passion for taking new technologies and applying it to pretty conventional set of ideas of storytelling and, and uh, the combination of those things I think is what 
That's not a simple answer, but it's not a simple. It's not a simple answer. No, I didn't expect it to be. Yeah. Yeah. We were trying to. Um, we we're thinking about just the breakdown of that question. Like uh-huh. you said about Steve Jobs, you know, arguably probably the greatest marketer of modern yeah. times, right? And uh, the things that you know we read about him. Obviously, we're a big fans since you know, as a designer, everything I do is on you know. A, a uh huh. Um, he seemed to really love the arts and to love the. Creating a, a spot where people could really explore um, opportunities and, and ideas and story and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think he was busy too. <laughs> so <laughs> he knew well enough that uh, between his own passion at uh, at Apple. So when he when he bought Pixar, he was kind of between Apple. You know, he was mm-hmm. off at Next, and he recognized in the folks here that they, these guys have a passion for this. Um, and he trusted them. You know, he trusted Ed. He trusted John to do this stuff. When he would come to our screenings years later, when we were doing features, um, and by, by that time I was here, we would always invite him to the screenings, and we'd ask for his notes. And he he would be very hedgy about giving notes, really, because like, really? Eh, you know, this is your guy's specialty. I really don't know about storytelling. Um, but and then he'd go on to rattle off like three completely insightful, deep things that we hadn't thought about. So he's really smart. But he also trusted the people that he hired, which is, again, not, not common, yeah, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. One of the biggest questions we wanted to ask Pete was his thoughts on where the movies come from. We often look at the finished product and imagine a moment of blinding inspiration, where the director sees the entire film come together and knows exactly what to do and how to make it happen. But from Pete's perspective, it's a lot of hard work, determination, and revision. Yeah, I mean, usually you have some kind of cute answer that sounds like it satisfies the question. But if you really want to know the truth, it's like knowing how the magician did a magic trick. Yeah. It's boring, <laughs> and it's def- it's kind of depressing in a way, because right. you're like, wait, you just practiced for five years to do this stupid <laughs> maneuver with your fingers, and that's how you did it? <laughs> you know, that's the way it is here. It's mostly like a, a little idea that was built upon and done and redone and redone and redone for so many years that it defies kind of normal intelligence. <laughs> yeah. No insane, you know, it must be insane that yeah. the people who do that. Um, it's just a lot, of, a lot of work and iteration, I think. I'm joy. This is sadness. That's anger. This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Oh, look out! You too, Anger. Don't touch me. Inside Out started, I mean, the answer I usually give because it's it's shorter and more interesting is it started with my daughter, that she was uh, a peppy, happy kid. She was uh, really um, uh, full of joy. And then she turned 11. And suddenly her continents changed, she changed kind of, and this is all somewhat true, um, but really where it started was me saying, how do I do something that I've never seen before? How do we do non-human characters? I want to push the limits of what the films we kind of make here. Uh, What would demand that? How can I come up with a story that demands these characters not just be like shrunken down realistic people? Uh, And when I hit on this idea of emotions as characters, I thought, oh my gosh, I could use 
the elements as, you know, like fire or water. I could use, like, who knows what these things are going to look like. And the world has to be completely made up. And that got me all excited. And then it was only a couple days later that I sort of made the connection to my daughter. And thinking, I wonder what emotions are going on in her head as she's growing up, as was true for me growing up. Sure. That was a very difficult time. And suddenly the whole world shifts. And what's going on? You know, so it really uh, was a, a number of elements that kind of came together at different times. So in the in that process, if you can kind of like give the cliff notes of how did that, so you have this idea and then, mm -hmm. and then how, how does it work here? Like how do you get the process um, or that idea into like initial production? Well typically what they ask for is to, uh, for people, to, uh, potential directors to pitch three ideas. And out of those three, uh, I think I had pitched three and John was like, mm, okay, keep thinking. Like nothing really grabbed him. And then uh, I was literally walking around uh, on a weekend and this idea came. And I came back and pitched it and John was like, yeah, that's interesting. So I shoved everything else aside and started with really not a lot more than, hey, uh, what if you have this kid who uh, is trying to answer a question and hesitant, like, so my, my sort of, pitch was there's a kid she's in class the teacher asks a question you can see the kid try to raise his hand, her hand and then stop and then you zip in her head and you hear her emotions argue about like we know the answer quick quick raise your hand and fear saying are you crazy did you see the last kid they mocked him out of the class and he, you know so there's a big argument and that was really all I had and John recognized immediately the humor of that the relatability of it and that's you know one of the many great things about working here is you have a guy who's making films for a living is also running the joint. So you know yeah. he, he recognizes the literal difficulty that's going to t that it's going to take to get this thing on the screen, and, as well as the um, entertainment possibilities of it. It's wonderful. One of the things that we um, talk about at Rule Twenty Nine is this exploration of wonder, and I actually use uh, Pixar as one of our points uh, to explore that. So, for example. Uh, I think what you guys do here is um, wonder is available when you explore it in the absurd. Mm. Um, and you know, it's absurd to think through uh, the inside out concept where all of a sudden emotions are the character. And, and my favorite example is, is Monsters Inc., which mm. I believe is your favorite. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So uh, tell me about that because I have four kids. Maybe you can relate to this. My oldest son, he's 13 now, but when huh. he was like nine, he goes, Dad, can you check under my bed for, for monsters? Or maybe this is a closet, I can't remember which mm. one it was. And I'm like, ah, there's no, there's no monsters in there. Go to bed, buddy. Mm -hmm. I think I want to go down and watch TV with my wife or something. Oh, yeah. And he said something that stopped me in my tracks. And he goes, Dad, how do you know if you don't look? Mm. He's thought, right. Since the very first bedtime, all around the world, children have known that once their mothers and fathers tucked them in, and shut off the light, that there are monsters hiding in their closets, waiting to emerge. But what they don't know is, it's nothing personal, it's just their job. Whoa! Ah! Nobody here. Huh? There's, there's no kid. There's supposed right, to be a kid. There's no kid to scare. Panic. I'm panicking because well, there's no, a total no, no, lack no, of kid here. That one was kind of, um, after Toy Story, I was kind of surprised how many people seemed to really relate to the 
concept of toys coming to life when you weren't around. I mean, that seemed like all three of us, Andrew Stanton and John and I, talked about it a lot, but it seemed very common. And I was wondering if there were other things in the world that we all kind of believed in. And well, of course, I knew that there were monsters hiding in my closet. Yeah. Um, I had one of those sliding closets, you know, there's two doors and they kind of slide next to each other and I swear there were a couple evenings where I saw a tentacle move yeah. in there. I'm gonna say so, how many times did you think you heard the closet doors move? Uh, rarely I heard them. It was mostly movement. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, for me. So that that meaning the moment at the very beginning where you see the tentacle um, that was that was straight out of my childhood. That is wonderful. And so then the fun of that was the fantastic and the mundane. You know, taking these monsters that are slobbering, drooling pigs, and they have to clock in and clock out and they eat donuts and talk about union dues. And yeah. that just seemed like, okay, that would be fun to play with. That's just yeah. funny, period. Yeah. And then it was only four years of reworking the story till we yeah. finally got it right. <laughs> so when you have that initial idea, like you feel like it's starting to come together, do you have any sense of what the timeline is gonna be like? You just said four years. Yeah. I mean, were you, do you have a deadline of needs to be pretty near done in four years or do you have freedom to kind of work with it as it comes? Well, if I could somehow control things, which clearly I can't, I would love to do them in about two, three years. Uh-huh. But it just never comes together. And now we have enough uh, evidence looking at the past films that we kind of know it's going to, from concept to finish, it's going to be about five years. It's just what it is. And uh, really, I think if you talk to most live action directors or or, uh, filmmakers, if you said, okay, from the first concept and all the rewrites of the script Mm -hmm. to casting and shooting and then final release, it's probably about five years too. I mean, there's some of them that are quicker, but a lot of times for us, it's really the rewriting that takes all the time. Um, And we do early on, we kind of earmark, well, look, let's slot this in in 2050 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And hopefully- (laughs) We'll uh, still be around. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Hopefully, you know, as we go, it's, it's somewhat fluid, although, once you announce it to the public and other factors, it it, yeah. it kind of gets harder to move it. I'm sure, yeah. So, um, since we're talking about your movies, I have to uh, talk about my favorite, Carl Fredrickson. <laughs> um, I have a question for you, and this could just be me making connections. It might not be there at all. But your um, student film, Next Door, uh-huh. is, that, is there... Do those two characters look similar? Yeah. Is that me just making connections where they don't exist? Yeah, I'm kind of a one-trick pony, I guess. (laughs) It was the square guy. That seemed like something about shape to me when we're exploring character uh, is it it speaks a lot, you know? So before you put all the details in, you just have these basic shapes. It's something we kind of start... On Inside Out, we started from shapes as well. Before we knew anything about the characters, we kind of chose basic blocks, circle, square, triangle, that kind of thing. And something about a square guy just says, like, I'm here, leave me alone, I'm closed in, I want things to stay the way they are, you know? And so um, that was one where we kind of started with that character, really, the character of Carl and the idea that he was going to float his house away. And then the rest of the story evolved to kind of make sense of that. Because I think I was watching Next Door, and when the character there sat down, they uh-huh. instantly went to up. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, man, they look, they look similar there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a longer story to up, which was that it started as a 
kind of Muppet-like fantasy with two brothers or princes in a floating city. Do you know this story? A little bit, but okay. uh, please tell it well, now that we're live. Because the idea was that they fell out. They were arguing over who was going to be the next king or something like that. And they fall off, and the, the city sort of floats away. And now they're desperate to get back there because they're in this desolate landscape of nothing. Yeah. And unless they get back, they're going to die. And along the way, they start to reluctantly kind of work together and they meet this strange bird that's actually kind of a hunter and I, it was quirkly it was quirky for sure but it was kind of cool uh, but it was so far out there that it was not uh, easy to pull together yeah. um, and as we sort of teetered on the edge of just getting you know fired from the studio or whatever <laughs> was going to happen um, uh, I said okay let's pull way back what is it about this that's driving us that's making us interested because a lot of times this is what you have to do like you get so mired in the details that you you are you stop doing what it was that got you into it you know so I realized well the thing that intrigued me about it was uh, the idea of getting away just escaping the world there's plenty of days where I just feel like I have had enough I just gotta get out um, and wouldn't it be nice to just be marooned on a tropical island or alone in the desert or something just by myself. Um, uh, during uh, Monsters, I, I looked at home, I had a stack of like 15 books about guys marooned on tropical islands <laughs> that I was just obsessively reading. Yeah. So it was really that idea of getting away from it all that, that sparked it. So we trans, I realized, well, if there's a whole floating city that doesn't really even speak to what it is that started this. So. Let's just have, um, it was Bob Peterson, who's a great collaborator and brilliant writer, as well as performer. He and I just kind of stripped it back to this old guy. His house floats away with balloons. There's something kind of poetic, and I'm rooting for that already. Yeah. Why? Why? Where is he going? Why did he do this? And then the whole story, like I say, kind of fell into place or was forced into place. Look at that one. That one looks like a dog. Oh, it is a dog. What? Oh, we're not allowed to have dogs in my apartment. Hey, I like dogs. We have your dog. Whoa. Wonder who he belongs to. Sit, boy. Hey, look, he's trained. Shake. Uh-huh. Speak. Hi there. <gasps> Did that dog just say hi there? Oh, yes. Bruh! So it seems like you... you you kind of have that perspective where you want to really push your movie um, concepts. Is that, is that true? Yeah, and I think that's true of everybody here. Everybody has their own kind of angle and way of doing that. But, um, I mean, I've, again, I've had some really great collaborators that have uh, helped me to try to think of something different, something new that we haven't seen before. I think there's a real value in surprising the audience. And, uh, I mean... What we were trying to do with Up was that just when you feel like, okay, I see where this is going to go, then throw something else at people. You're like, okay, he fled his house off. Okay, then, whoa, there's a knock at the door. Okay, I see where this is going to be a guy stuck with a little kid. Wait a minute, what? There's talking dogs? and a Strange giant bird? What? You know, so hopefully in a good way, you're like, okay, where, where is this going? Okay? Um, and hopefully it all adds up. And that's the tough part is is <laughs> making it all add up. Because you can throw stuff, weird stuff yeah, in, day, but yeah. um, making it come together in some way was really the lion's share of the work. <laughs> where did the inspiration for uh, Charles Munz come from? 
we were looking for kind of a mirror character to Carl. So this guy, Carl, has sat at home in a small town and never traveled beyond probably 30 mile radius. Um, and he feels like he totally failed because he did not ever have the adventure that he had promised his wife. So we thought, well, what's the opposite of that? This guy who has sailed around the world in what a dirigible, you know, and he's explored everything and seen wild animals and made these amazing discoveries. So it was really kind of like a mirror character mm. to Carl in a lot of ways. No, that's very great. So uh, one uh, thing I wanted to check, I read this um, on Wikipedia, and of course, you know, everything on the internet is obviously true. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it said that um, that you partially based the character of Buzz, Buzz Lightyear off yourself by looking in a mirror and um, conceptualizing the character. Is that is that true? Well, partly. Um, uh, I mean, I didn't design it, so um, I did have a hand in some early concepts, but but mostly it was between Bud Lucky and Bob Pauly who designed the character. But then I was a supervising animator on the show, which means there were 27 animators, and it was my job to help them, uh, and of course listen to John Lasseter, the director of the film, but help everybody unify so that even though 15 people are, are animating Buzz, right. they're all somewhat consistent, looks like the main character, the same character. Buzz Lightyear to Star Command. Come in, Star Command. Star Command, come in. Do you read me? Why don't they answer? <gasps> My ship! And one thing we did all do was to have a mirror on our desk and you'd make expressions and study like, okay, what's going on there when I make this face? And so a lot of times that's what I do for Buzz. I see, I seem, I remember kind of connecting more to Buzz than to Woody. <laughs> I don't know what that says about it. It's aspirational. It yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. One of the most interesting parts of Pixar's film production process is the use of what they call a brain truss, where directors present a rough version of a potential film to their colleagues, and essentially they spend time to open up the film to be completely ripped apart to ensure that the story, characters, and overall vision make sense. I think one of the items of the brain trust wills that just blows me away is that it could be months or years worth of work that is suddenly put into question and redirected and reformed and reshaped. But I think there's a consensus at Pixar that the brain trust is one of the most critical and important tools to ensure their films are as magical as they are. The kind of idea behind it is that, especially if you're working on these things for four or five years, you're just so close, you can't see what objectively you're putting across. So you need to show it to a group of people that you can trust, that you will listen to, uh, that will uh, be able to tell you what you actually have. And so this grew out of, um, on Toy Story it was obviously all of us just, whenever there was trouble we would get together and talk about it. And then as we started breaking up into, I was doing Monsters and then Andrew was starting on Nemo and so we realized well, we still need to kind of get together, get that old brain back together to, to analyze and, and assess each other's work. And the thing is, it's not, um, it's a tricky, tricky balance because you have to be honest, right? You have to, you can't be like, oh, it's great, you're wonderful, it's, I love it, you know. You try to be supportive, but you also have to be honest because it, usually there are big problems. So you have to find a way to, like in a constructive way, say, look, I know here's what you're aiming for. I, I think what you're aiming for is this, but I don't get that at all, and, and here's a, another problem. And so those can be kind of brutal yeah, yeah. because it's, uh, 
you've built up this false reality of this is great, my movie is awesome, and then you show it to people, and then all that goes away. <laughs> what um, can can you share? What was the movie that you worked on that had the hardest criticism or the most mm. difficulty? Hmm. Or you walked out with the most bruises after a meeting like that? Well, I think Up was probably the most difficult because it was such a discovery. Well, they all were, but I, I guess Monsters, I didn't know enough to know that I was in trouble. Because uh, that was your first That was point? the first one that I directed. And everybody, you know, when, when you have these crucial points uh, where things are not working, people would come together and help you solve problems. And then Up was at a time at the studio when there was a lot going on. And because I had done one before, I think there was this sort of tacit idea that, well, he, he kind of knows what he's doing, which I, of course, don't, <laughs> even now. But uh, so it was Bob and I and a small group kind of finding our way on this, on this and it was struggling. The, the film was sort of thrashing in terms of what it was trying to be. Um, so we had a lot of tough notes on that one. But they've, they've all been tough. It's hard to tell which one was the most tough. <laughs> now, you said something earlier about how you guys are all together um, sort of as a tribe, when you're, your group, when you're making a movie. Uh -huh. I would think that as you're doing this, you guys must get incredible clo incredibly close. What is it like at the end? Is it, is it a sense of relief or is there like a sadness or is it like a combination of emotions or how does that, what is that like? It's a combination. It's, it's very bittersweet because yeah, like you say, you've gotten so close to these people, you know, especially, you know, when you're working on story, uh, you're sitting in this room and you get to a problem that the main character has and you're like, you know, this reminds me of my own marriage. And you, it becomes like therapy sessions where you're exposing all this like yeah. deep, dark stuff about yourself and admitting things that you would never tell any, any other person. Yeah. And so you, you end up really getting to know these people deeply. And then uh, there's a sense of elation that you've actually finished it, we've pulled it off, the movie is out there, and look, people are actually going to see it, that's great, but now we don't get to be together anymore. You know, everybody splits up. Um, we've, I've been lucky enough on Up and on Inside Out to have several of the same collaborators. Jonas Rivera, who produced, and uh, this guy, Ronnie Del Carmen, who I'd also hold as really key to both of those films. Um, so. When you're creating these stories, you'd said something that I, I was I wanted to ask about a little bit. So, how much real life, or when you have these meetings and you're having these really authentic conversations, does that often influence and shift the storyline or kind of what you're doing because it's more relatable? Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, what you're trying to do is, even though these films are about bugs or cars or whatever they are, um, that you're hopefully putting something up there on the screen that everybody can go, yeah, I recognize that. That's happened in my life. Not exactly, but enough that I right. resonate with it. Um, and a lot of times your first stabs at it are like, eh, you know, we get a lot of notes from the first screening that we have, our story reels, that people are like, I don't understand your main character. And you always know that's, that we've failed to kind of connect in that deeper way for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, we do a lot of storytelling about our, our own lives and kind of character analysis of like, what's driving so-and-so? Uh, this other guy I know, he, you know, he's, his marriage split up or whatever, and why was it? Da, da, da. So you're really trying to get inside the character's heads um, by looking at real life. So as part of that process from developing your stories, you kind of create the world that that person must be exist in or that, or that character, um, you know? Like Carl, 
you know, what did he do as for a job, you know, kind of what was his interest, yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, world building and kind of backstory and all this. And not all of it shows up directly in the film, but you definitely have to have this sort of, uh, I've heard it described as a godlike knowledge of the world you're creating, that around any corner you should be able to say, I know what's there. I know how long has Carl lived in this house, uh, where his parents came from, uh, everything about this guy. Yeah. Um, and hopefully some of that shows up as a sort of a depth. Mm. How do you um, kind of weed through the viable ideas from the ones that you can kind of tell aren't going anywhere? And how, uh, yeah. how quick does that dichotomy happen? Good question. Uh, if I could answer that, I would not take five years to make the movies. <laughs> yeah. um, usually, so the, the easy ones are the ones that you can reject pretty quickly. Like you try it and you quickly realize, well, look, if this, if we went that way, it would lead to blah, 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 blah. And that would mean that we're no longer telling this story. Um, but the tricky ones are the ones that sound really enticing. And the only way I know is to track it down, just test it out, yeah. put it up there. We did on, on Inside Out, uh, I did a maybe a year and a half detour uh, of pairing joy with fear because on first blush it felt like, well, fear was a really big driver for me in junior high, you know? Right. So for this girl at this age, fear has a lot to say. Let's put fear in the driver's seat next to joy and really drive the story that way. Um, and then, of course, in the long run, we hit a roadblock. And yeah. I realized, I don't even know what this story's about now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, that's just, you just have to kind of try it. Mm-hmm. At least that's the only way I know. Yeah. yeah you, you had said something, if I may, um, that I thought was great. And this is kind of going to my earlier point, which is um, if I started a film and right away know the structure, where it's going, the plot, I don't trust it. I feel like the only reason we're able to find some of these unique ideas and characters and story choices through discovery. Yeah. So yeah. the process if, has to be big, right? Yeah, yeah, because if I know where the story is going, then chances are you could probably guess where it's going to. And like I say, I think hopefully you, you're able to... Well, when I go to a movie, I'll say, I, I'm hoping to be surprised. I'm hoping to be entertained, of course, and uh, amazed, but also not be able to predict where this is going. Um, on the other hand, when you're making the story and you've got nothing... You desperately want some sort of structure. So you read all those books about like three-act structure and, oh, no, we're at the end of the first act. We need a reversal. And, uh, yeah. So you're, you're definitely um, <laughs> trying to learn as much as you can so that you have something on which to build. <laughs> so let's talk about, uh, so how do you free, feed your creativity? Like, do you go see a lot of movies still? I feel like I should see more because I'm not as ravenous as, as even a lot of friends that I, I know. They, they've seen everything. Um, but I try to expose myself to a lot of different things, you know, go out, uh, see plays, see uh, theater. Uh, well, that's the same thing. Uh, uh, <laughs> we just got back from Europe, so we got, you know, go out there into the world and um, Museums and in different world, real life experiences. Yeah. I think I've learned a ton uh, from just being a father, you know, yeah. and uh, a husband. And, and I feel like that's probably been the biggest influence on my work than anything else. Mm-hmm. How much um, did you shift when you became a dad? 
can you articulate that as far as a story make a, a storyteller movie maker hmm um well I mean it's what led to Monsters um Inc. You know, that was a movie like we talked earlier about uh, this guy who clocks in, clocks out and uh, loves his job. And then as we got into it, I think I was just drawn almost by uh, unconsciously the sort of archetype of the big hulking animal with this little vulnerable kid. Um, but then when my wife and I had a kid, it sent a whole nother level through that film uh, and a, a level of understanding for me as a, as a uh, filmmaker, which which was okay. Yeah, I still love my job. I I'm lucky enough to be working at a place that I find constant energy by, and I can't stop thinking about it, almost to an unhealthy level. <laughs> Talk to my wife about that. Yeah. Uh, but then now I have a kid who I desperately want to see him, and and now he's smiling. Oh my gosh, I missed that because I was at work, and you know. So it's that struggle of how do you do both that ended up being at the heart of what that film is. So on one level or another, I think per, uh, being a parent has affected every, everything that I've done since then. Here are the nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. Coraline, directed by Henry Selleck. Fantastic Mr. Fox, directed by Wes Anderson. The Princess and the Frog, directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. The Secret of Kells, directed by Tom Moore. Up, directed by Pete Docter. And the winner is... Up. Peter Docter. This is the first Academy Award and sixth nomination for Pete Docter. His first nomination was for the original screenplay, Toy Story. Boy, never did I dream that making a flip book out of my third grade math book would lead to this. Boy, it's incredible being here. It's just me right now, but please picture this whole stage full of the most amazing cast and crew uh, you've ever experienced. Jonas Rivera, producer, uh, Bob Peterson, co-director. You guys should all be up here with me. Thanks so much to Disney and to Pixar Animation Studios for believing in this oddball film. It was an incredible, incredible adventure making this movie but the heart of it came from home. And to our families, in my case, my wonderful parents, they were so supportive, my kids, Nicholas and Ellie, and my amazing wife, Amanda, you guys are the greatest adventure. Thank you. So uh, the culture here, it seems like it is one that really wants to give you an opportunity to kind of pursue awe and wonder. Um, how does that how does that manifest itself every day? How does that live out here? Yeah, it's funny you choose those words because it's nothing that we initially set out to do. I think we sort of stumbled on it, this idea that the world is full of uh, amazing things and that really when you get down to it, that's on one level why you choose to expose yourself to art, whether it be music, or painting or, or anything. It's that idea that you're sort of shaking yourself awake, you know, uh, on a daily basis, it's so easy to just, for me anyway, to fall into routine. I wake up, I know I'm gonna 
get to work, I'm gonna exercise, I'm gonna da 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 da, and now it's oh, time for bed. So that just cycles through every day. And I think when you go to a film or exposed to some story that sort of like shakes you and says, you're alive, pay attention. You know, that's I think the job that we have as storytellers. Um, and usually that sort of manifests itself in a sense of awe and wonder um, that you failed to experience just by get, getting trapped in the cycle of, of everyday life. Um, the guy that I worked with on Inside Out, this guy named Dacker Keltner, he was our science, one of our scientific collaborators. Uh, he has uh, an intense uh, interest in, in awe. And the, the vega nerve, the nerve that travels to the front of your chest that sort of sparkles when you see the Grand Canyon or something, you know. Uh, that experience is really vital to remembering that you're alive. Anyway. Well, I, I remember seeing Toy Story for the first time. And it was like a mouth open, unbelievable. Like I remember, I think it was Buzz's shield when it comes down and the reflection mm -hmm. that you saw in it. And then mm -hmm. Sully, when you first see Sully and the light kind of goes through his hair. Oh yeah. And I'm just like, blow my mind type yeah. stuff. So yeah. I feel like the aesthetic in your films have it as well as the story, so. Well, upsetting. that's one of the cool things about, you know, getting to work at a place that uh, was on the forefront uh, and hopefully still is, of uh, this technology. Because every day you come in here and you, we, we react the same way. You know, these amazing scientists pa partnered with artists. You look at the artwork that they show you and you, and you scrape your jaw off the floor. It's just yeah. stunning. You've never seen it before. So do you or do you as a, as a organization, do you ever think about how your movies impact culture or the people that watch them? Every day. I mean, not in a pompous way, uh, more just like from an audience point of view. You do everything you can when you're working on a film for five years to try to hypnotize yourself into like, all right, I know nothing about this. I'm coming in, I'm, I'm erasing my head, and now how do I react? And so that's, you know, I'm, con I'm constantly trying to experience the stuff that I'm making from the shoes of the people I hope will see it. But not so much in terms of culture, like, gee, can we make a catchphrase that'll get caught in the vernacular? I, I, we're not thinking like that at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I would, I, and, and I don't want to make this assumption, but I feel like a movie like Inside Out, for example, uh -huh. um, it's, you know, just the subject matter with emotions and all that sort of thing. I would think probably some of your movies would have an opportunity to maybe give people an opportunity to connect on a different level. Yeah. And talk about emotions and that or, sort of thing. Or understand a part of themselves maybe that they weren't able to before. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was uh, something that, as it turned out, a lot of people uh, talked about. I've heard from a number of psychologists who said they used the film to talk to their mm -hmm. patients about emotions and how the, all that works. And I wish I could say we plan on that because it would <laughs> sound better. But no, it was sort of a, a happy accident. It was really a byproduct of choosing subject matter that felt like it had some depth to it. That. Uh, something to talk about and a connection that everybody could relate to. Um, but you know, I think with most really well-told stories, uh, there is going to be something that feels like uh, 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 what's the right word? Well, it's like a metaphor that allows you to understand life from a different angle. Um, that's one of the functions of any kind of story is just saying, okay, I didn't really understand this until I heard this story, and now because of the specifics and the way the characters reacted, suddenly I have this deeper mm -hmm. you know, meaning in my head of 
what this is all about. So uh, I just have a little uh, creative um, question. Cool. Uh, do you, uh, how do you like document your ideas? Like for example, I'm the worst. I get up in the middle of the night and I feel like I have these brilliant moments of yeah. just best ideas ever. And yeah, I fall back to sleep and I wake up the next morning and I cannot remember the life of me. <laughs> Did that ever happen to you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have a little uh, bunch of paper next to my bed. And if I do, th I've learned, because it's the same thing, where if you don't write it down, it's gone. Yeah. But uh, disappointingly, most of the ideas that seemed brilliant <laughs> in the morning are like, eh, not so great. Um, must have been some eight or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have scraps of paper all over the place. I have these in the back of my pocket. I, I don't even remember what those are for. So, you know, I'll go through at the end of the day and try to transcribe anything that was <laughs> relevant. Yeah. And then most of it falls by the wayside. But, you know, how are you going to know? Yeah. 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 So for uh, getting back to a question I was asking earlier about movies. Um, so, oh, I also have this thing. So this is my wallet. It's made out of um, uh, a Tyvek, like a yeah, Did you make that yourself? Yeah. And then inside there's my credit cards on one side and then a bunch of paper. So I can write down ideas and then I transcribe any of them that, some of them are just to-do lists. Like, you know, there's a kind of bourbon that might be good or whatever. Um, but then a lot of it is... Do you have a bourbon actually that might be good? Yeah. Hillhaven. Anyway, uh, I haven't tasted it so I, like I can't bourbon, speak so to this it. Is great. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, um, a lot of it is like ideas for stories or, or the way to pitch something or a connection to the character. And so that, that's a good way for me. Because I, I don't know, I get frustrated on the eye devices of sitting there and typing. And you always feel so detached and rude when you're in the middle of yeah. a conversation and whoop, whip yeah. out the thing. Like so when I was taking your picture right there, it's so <laughs> a little yeah. distracting. Yeah. Uh, but, but if you somehow, if I write, that's less rude. And anyway, oh, yeah. it's a little yeah. more organic to the thing. Well, that's good. It's nice to hear that uh, um, we're not the only ones that have that challenge sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, on the the writing process, how has that been for you? Like, do you do you enjoy writing? Um, I don't think of myself as a writer, but I guess you know I am. Uh, uh, it's been more of a means to an end. So I'm not a guy who like since I was a kid wanted to be a writer in the way like you know you talk to Michael Arndt who wrote on. Toy Story 3 and worked on uh, Inside Out at the beginning. Um, and I think he just eats, breathes, sleeps, dreams about writing and structure and, you know, he's amazing to talk to because of that. For me, writing is just like, how do I get something out of my head and onto the screen? And uh, it's one way, there's also drawing or doing goofy voices or puppets or any, you know, number of things to try to get it out of there. Wills, we got to go to Pixar. Yeah, could you believe it? I know, it's still surreal to me. You know, what is amazing is that I don't think Pete considers himself one of Hollywood's most decorated and revered directors. No. I mean, he's a master storyteller, as are all of the Pixar team. But even though he is that, one of the most refreshing things about hanging out with him is I think he still sees himself as a shy kid who just likes drawing and telling stories. And I think that's evident in the magic that they create as a team. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time and your gifts, Pete. I think all of our lives are a little bit brighter thanks to the stories that you've told. We'd like to take a moment to say thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Sleeping at Last. Sleeping at Last's new record is available now, and check it out on their website at sleepingatlast.com. 
And you know, Wills, we of course have to give special thanks to our audio engineer, Steve Wick. He's like your favorite Pixar film. I'm watching you, Wazowski. Always watching. Whew, she's nuts. Monsters, Inc., for the record. Up. You're, you're killing me. Mm-hmm. We'd also like to thank Rule 29 for giving us the space and resources to create this show. We're super excited for everything that's coming up this fall and winter, and we can't wait to share it with you. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Design of Podcasts, and check us out online at designofpodcast.com. See you guys next episode. 